right, sharing the faith. Last week, we last two weeks, we no, last week we talked about why bother, and this week we're going to talk about objections. That is, what are uh, let me. I'll say this: the gracious and the ungracious ways, and you decide which one you needed to hear. Um, what are the legitimate concerns that you may have about engaging in these types of conversations? That's the gracious way to say it. Say it. And the other way is: what are the excuses that you're making and the lies that you're allowing yourself to believe that prevent you from engaging in these kinds of conversations? So you decide uh, the level of grace you need in your life, and uh, I will supply that much and no more as is my policy. First, objection. So this is why we shouldn't do faith conversations, or really why we don't initiate faith conversations. Uh, First is this idea that it's wrong to argue with people. As you can tell, I find this one entirely unpersuasive. But many of you do. And this is normally a response to someone experiencing these conversations that go badly or that are done poorly. When you see really aggressive, obnoxious engagement in faith conversations, somebody who's just being argumentative and unkind, ungracious in their hearing, uncharitable in their speech, you see that and you know intuitively that cannot be right. Um, Or you'll see it go badly. You'll see someone try to be winsome and gracious, but it's the hearer, the recipient, who then lashes out in angry response, ends the relationship, or just gets mad and speaks ill of you to others. And you think that that outcome can't be right. And so you end up with this excuse of, well, it's just wrong to argue with people. And the confusion here is really the difference between arguing and being argumentative. Arguing is a technical term. Arguing is a term that means giving a defense, giving a rationale, making your case. If you argue before the Supreme Court, it doesn't mean that you're pounding on the thing and you're yelling at people. That'll actually get you thrown out of the Supreme Court. It means that you are offering a compelling case. The best evidence that you have presented in an organized, logical way. That's what it means to have an argument in the technical sense of the term. Um, What we think about when we think of arguments is being argumentative, just wanting to fight. Or you've seen, I hope you've seen, your life is, uh, you've missed out if you have not seen the Monty Python argument sketch where the guy comes in and pays for a five minute argument and all the guy will do is, is naysay him just whenever he says yes, he says no. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. And he says, that's not an argument. That's right. Uh, the, that's just being argumentative. That's just no matter what you say, I'm going to dismiss it. And a lot of times when you work hard uh, to be gracious and winsome, the person that you're talking to in the conversation is so uncomfortable hopefully by the weight of their own guilt and sin before God, but they are so uncomfortable, they will become argumentative. Even if they're more even-keeled and their version of argumentative isn't loud and passionate like mine is, 
their version of argumentative will always be the shell game. They move over here, and then they move over there. And when you try to respond to this thing, they move the target over. We're going to talk about this now. And then you say, okay, let's talk about that. And then you make one great question about the thing they brought up. And they say, well, yeah, but what about this over here? And then over there. And huh, you can't deal with all this. And you, well, n- n- I mean, I could deal with any of it if we could stop on one and deal with the one. Uh, so we don't want to be argumentative. We're not looking to pick a fight. We're not looking to haggle over unimportant details. And this can be really hard. The more you think about these conversations, the more mature you become in your faith, the more your your theological knowledge and vocabulary mature. So you know not just things that are true, but you know the the better way, the precise way to articulate that thing that's true. Um, you think about analogies. When you're trying to describe the, the doctrine of the Trinity through an analogy, first of all, don't. But when you try to, there's a certain level of Christianity where you say, well, it's like water. And water has three phases. And it's water, and it's ice, and it's vapor. And at one level of truth, that communicates something somewhat useful. But the, uh, the more you learn about the Trinity and about scriptural theology about the Trinity, when somebody says, oh yeah, I get the Trinity, it's like water, uh, uh, your, every fiber of your being is going to respond with heresy. 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 <laughs> That's modalism. <laughs> no, no, in fact, that analogy was specifically rejected by the courts of the church hundreds of years ago because it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, but okay, but... Okay, it's like an egg, right? Where you've got a shell, and you've got a white, and you've got a yolk. Also heresy. And every fiber of your being is going to want to just argue with people over things that either are wrong or are not the best, most precise way to say it. And what you've got to do in these conversations is avoid being argumentative by letting a lot of that stuff go. Is the goal of a conversation about your faith to get someone to short-circuit to immediately where you are in knowledge and Christian maturity, or is the goal of that conversation to take them wherever they are and move them one step closer to Christ and Christian maturity? One step, not all the steps at once, not trying to get, you know, set myself up as the pinnacle of here's where you need to be and I'm going to get you here today whether you like it or not, but getting people one step closer to Christ, not picking fights, not haggling over unimportant details, um, arguing, yes, but not being argumentative. It is a naive objection, though, that wants to say, let's just love people. It's wrong to have these conversations because they make people feel bad. It's wrong to argue with people. These conversations usually go poorly. Why can't we just love people? And it really reveals something about our culture and even the culture in the church particularly that we think it's wrong to point out someone's error, to point out flaws in someone's thinking. We think it's wrong to call something wrong. To say, that is not correct. That is not accurate. I don't think that is what the Bible teaches. Let's go look. And what you'll be told is that that sort of judgmentalism to say that what I believe is right and what you believe is wrong is always inappropriate. And that's just not true. That's not what the Bible teaches about this particular issue. Um, We're told that we lack empathy 
when we make those sorts of judgments. And I've talked about the empathy movement before, so I won't go into all of that here. I will say positively, when what the empathy movement wants from us is that we not be jerks, we should listen to them. Who's got Romans 12, 18? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't be jerks. Who's got Proverbs 15.1? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Why would you be the one to stir up anger? If the Holy Spirit convicting somebody stirs up anger, God's will be done. But if you stir up anger because you decide to be harsh rather than gentle, that's not helpful. That's not useful to anybody. So when the empathy movement wants us to not be jerks, we should listen. When... Most of us who are troubled by, I'm calling it the empathy movement, the the real pressure you are all under today to quote-unquote be empathetic, what many of them really want is not only for you to not be a jerk, we agree with that, they also want you to be less certain about what you believe. They want you to be less certain about everything. What they think is wrong with you is that you are too certain about what you believe. Who's got Genesis 15, 13, and 14? Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that four hundred years that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possession. How does God want his people to feel about his revelation to them? When God says something to his people, he says, no for certain. Who's got Luke 1, 3, and 4? I do. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Why did Luke write his gospel? That Theophilus would have certainty would be certain. Who's got Acts 2.36? Let all the house of Israel therefore know that cert- for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, takes these events that happen at Pentecost, and he takes Old Testament prophecies, and he preaches a sermon that shows you this is the fulfillment of that, which is actually what today's sermon is about. What happens at Pentecost is the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. Peter makes that connection, and then he tells the people, because Scripture says it, you should be certain. certain. Who's got Romans 6, 5, and 6? For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You take the thing that we do have today, the thing we do experience, the power and presence and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the down payment that God's given us through the Holy Spirit, and because of that, Paul says we should be what about our future glorification? Certain. Certain. Certainty is not the problem. 
God wants His people to not just be sure about what they believe and to feel strongly, to be certain that what you believe, because it's from Scripture, is accurate. Certainty is actually a red herring that Satan uses as a tool because he can't win on the facts. You know the old expression that if the lawyer can win on the facts, he presents the facts. And if he can't, uh, it pounds on the facts. And if he can't win on the facts, he pounds on the table. right? (laughs) Because you've got to create a distraction when the facts don't support you. This whole certainty thing is a red herring discussion because Satan cannot win on facts. If, if unbelievers put up their facts about the universe against your facts about the universe revealed from God in his word, they cannot win. And so they have to move to attacking the person, attacking the messenger, the ad hominem attacks, they're called, which is, Pam, you're just way too sure about what you believe. Well, wait, what does that have to do with the truth of what I believe? Right? That's the, I don't believe Christianity because Christians are hypocrites. And I don't go to banks because bank tellers are hypocrites? What? What's the connection between those two? Well, there's not. It's that we can't argue on the facts. And if we can't argue on the facts, then let's argue about the people. Um, so certainty is not the problem. The last thing I'd say about this, it's wrong to argue with people, is it loses sight of the key truth here, which is that the vigorous pursuit of truth is a Christ-like endeavor. So it's wrong to argue with people. Is it more wrong to be indifferent while they perish in their sins? Which is more loving? To say, I don't want to hurt your feelings, so I'm not even going to try to do the best job I can, the most winsome way I can, to tell you the truth about Christ. Hurting your feelings is so risky that I would rather you perish. Not not super loving. Who's got John 8, 31-32? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And Pam, James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So which is more important? Again, I'm not giving us permission to be argumentative, to be jerks, to be rude. I'm saying that if the objection is it's unloving to argue with people, it's unloving to tell them, that they're believing lies. It's unloving to ask people deep questions about things they haven't thought about and make them uncomfortable. If that is unloving, we got a real problem when we put it on the scale against losing their souls and perishing in the fire. So we've got to figure out the way to do it well. We can't just say, I'm not going to do it. It has to sound worth it to us. Um, All right, questions about that one? Understand? Can you also say uh, Jesus argued with people? So mm. you can't be wrong. <laughs> but you know what happens when you make that argument? Because I've made that argument with people. You're not Jesus. Paul. You seem to be a relatively argument. You're not Paul. <laughs> you see what they have to do? They have to make an ad hominem attack. Yeah, they could do it well. You can't. Because I know you. Right? And because the Apostle Paul is probably not going to come out and argue with them at this point. So they're not so uh, afraid of that. All right, what about this objection? Y'all have heard this one before. 
fine, you can argue, but no one is argued into the kingdom of God. And so this would suggest that the conversations aren't wrong, they're just ineffective. This argument loves the quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which I don't believe history supports him ever saying, but that quote, preach the gospel when necessary, use words, love that quote. Why don't you just let your life be your faith conversation? Huh? Why don't you just do life with people and then you don't have to have these conversations? Who's got Romans 10, 16 through 18? But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Faith comes by hearing. Christianity is an oral faith. It's it's a faith that is heard. Reject the mutually exclusive claim. Reject the idea. (laughs) Because making a good argument for the faith doesn't nullify your good works and what people see. Doing life with people isn't mutually exclusive with telling people the reason and the power behind your good life. When you do good works, that's great. You should do good works. And you should be able to communicate to people why and how you do them. Because a lot of people will look at your good works and say, you're just a really good person. I just I wasn't born for this with this love for other people like you have. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Neither was I. I don't know what you're talking about. The power of God can make me love my neighbor. Not I wake up in the morning thinking, what can I do to love my neighbor today? Right? Not not me. Uh, these are not mutually exclusive. Now, it is true. The facts of these conversations, the things that we say in faith conversations, the argument that we're presenting for Christianity, is not enough to convert someone. It's absolutely true that there are no rationales you can give that will change a person's heart from stone to flesh. That doesn't mean that those facts, that conversation, that argument, isn't useful in God's work of converting their heart from stone to flesh. God uses means. And you see all throughout the Old and New Testament that uh, conversations, words that are heard in people's ears, whether one-on-one or often in the context of worship or even more often in the context of the family, those words go into people's ears and God uses those to... uh, to bring about his work of conversion. The other, when they say that your words can't convert people, neither can doing life with them. Neither can your good works. Your example can't make anybody a Christian. So that's the wrong standard. Um, It's both and. It's not either or. God converts people. Full stop. No one has ever been converted to Christianity except by God the Holy Spirit. Has not happened in the history of the world, is not possible. We are totally and completely dead in our sins and trespasses. We are not 99.9% dead with just this tiny little beam of light that will draw us back toward God. We are completely dead. A lot of us grew up in churches where we were taught the the pit model, right? You're down in this pit. Ah, in a pit, and then Jesus is up here, I'll put a cross, and Jesus throws you a rope, 
And that's salvation. And all you got to do is grab Jesus's rope. And what's the gigantic scriptural problem with this illustration? Dead people can't grab ropes. Scripture doesn't say you're in a pit. It says you're dead. It doesn't say you're sick and lame. It says you're dead. You can't grab this rope. It's not enough for Jesus to come down here and give you a rope. What Jesus gives you a rope, he gives you a rope, and he gives you, I don't know how to draw faith. He gives you faith. (laughs) Rope plus faith is salvation. Because then in faith, I'm now alive in Christ. That's why scripture uses that language. I'm given a new heart. That's why scripture uses that language. I have the new birth. That's why scripture uses that language. God gives a rope plus faith. And then what can people with new heart, new birth, new life do? They can grab ropes. And that's exactly what we do. We grab the rope because nobody who God gives a new heart looks at God who gave him a new heart and looks at his rope and says, now nah, I'll pass. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody's ever done that. So this is, this is what's happening here. So no, our good works cannot convert people. Our words cannot convert people. God converts people and God uses our good works. He uses our words, our conversations to do what the New Testament calls tilling the soil, planting seeds, watering the ground. But who gives the growth? God gives the growth. So this is a cop-out. No one's argued into the kingdom of God. Only God can convert people. Absolutely. And what means does God use to convert people? Tilling the soil, planting the seed, and watering. And then he will give growth. So this one is a real cop-out. Questions about that one? I've heard the uh, the term hyper Calvinist before. That's probably me. I don't know. (laughs) Is that sort of like kind of what you're saying, where some people are like? Have you heard that term? Oh, oh, okay, yes. So what you're talking about is um, there are people who say it's a slightly different category, but just quickly, there are people who say because God does this work of saving, God both knows everyone that he is going to save which is true and God alone can save them which is true and you can't know from the outside whether or not you're looking at a person who God is going to save you're not God you don't have that certainty well everything I just said is true then they say therefore it's wrong to have faith conversations you should not offer the gospel freely Because you're offering the gospel to a bunch of people who can't accept it. And that's wrong. It's an absolutely stupid therefore. Jesus answered this in a peril. uh, Parable. (laughs) Jesus, Jesus answered this in a parable. When a sower went to sow some seed, did he look at the rocky soil and say, nope, and keep walking? And look at the sand and say, nope, and keep walking? What did the sower do? Liberally. This is actually just a small moment of pride for the Scottish Presbyterians because we don't get many moments of pride in Scottish Presbyterianism. This this was the issue that the faithful Scottish Presbyterians split over and were martyred for, was the free offer of the gospel. This idea, we preach to everyone who will hear it. We take the gospel out everywhere because we cannot know this person that is the most militant God hater that you could imagine, maybe God's having you tell soil for a work he's going to do in 30 years. And so we just spread seed. That's <laughs> a uh, good question. It's God, God's view of history is so much longer than ours. Um, all right, third excuse. 
the Bible needs no defense. Doesn't that sound pious? The Bible needs no defense. Now that statement is true. Scripture is self-authenticating. Unbelievers have their minds blown over the answer to this question when a Christian can answer it correctly. I'm going to put Jake on the spot. Jake, how do we know the Bible is true? Because the Bible says it's true. That's mind-blowing for now. That's circular reasoning. Yep. But let me show you why it has to be circular reasoning. Because if I said the Bible is true because Jake says it's true, then who's more supreme? Jake or the Bible? Jake. I didn't believe the Bible until Jake told me to believe the Bible. So at some point, we'll talk more about this in a few weeks, but at some point as you keep ratcheting up your, well, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know? At some point you have to get one level that is self-reference. I know because it says so, and it is the ultimate authority. And so the only question we're all arguing over is who is that ultimate authority? And we're saying it's the Bible, and unbelievers are saying it's them. We're saying it's God. We're saying it's God is revealed through the Bible. Yeah. Right, because you've got to be careful just saying it's God, because lots of people who deny the Bible say it's God. It's God as he reveals himself to them. Every one of those books that I mentioned on the top 15 Christian books at the Christian booksellers, believes that God just speaks to them, and that's how they know that it's true. I was like, well, bad pizza, staying up too late, too many cocktails, has told me a lot of things that I could say came from God, but I'm not quite sure that's it. Um, Scripture is self-authenticating. Scripture is our ultimate authority. God doesn't need our words to prove that he's true. That is correct. But it's not being used as correct. It's being used as a cop-out. Because the question isn't, when we're talking about faith conversations, does the Bible need our defense? That's not the question. The question is, does the Bible deserve our defense? Does the Bible warrant our defense? Is it important enough that we would be willing to defend it? Um, And then, if it is worth it, which we all agree it is, a second valuable question is, can such a book, an ultimate authority, be defended without undoing its authority? That's a valid question, and the New Testament answers that yes, all over the place. The New Testament is a constant stream of defending the Bible's authority through the Bible's own authority, and it's a great place for us to learn how to do that. Who's got Titus 1.9? I do. <laughs> you must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. When our arguments are from the Bible, then we're not undermining the Bible's authority. We're relying on them. We are putting them to their proper use. The Bible defends itself, but the Bible is a book. A Bible doesn't stand up and speak in defense of itself, except in the Apocrypha, Beth and the Dragon, where the Bible, no, it's the cross that comes alive and then goes and talks to people. That's some way out there stuff. Uh, The Bible doesn't do this, and so we do it. We, through the power of the Holy Spirit, give the Bible an animated defense. Questions about these... um, excuses, objections, why we don't have these conversations. And then I want to talk about some dangers. The Bible needs no defense, silly, because there were whole church councils that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But you know what? Who among us, when we're coming up for reasons and excuses not to do something we know we should do, 
doesn't get a little bit um, sanctimonious about it. That's what all these are. These are sanctimonious. They start out as something that's true. It is wrong to be an argumentative jerk, don't you think? Yeah. Then we shouldn't have faith conversations. No. <laughs> no, no one gets argued into the kingdom of God. Yeah. So we shouldn't have faith conversations. No. The Bible doesn't need a defense. Yeah. So we shouldn't have faith conversations. No. Right? It's, it's just take something that's true, and it sounds so holy and sanctified. That's where the word sanctimonious comes from. There's this very fine line between sanctified and sanctimonious. They both involve truth. Sanctified is using truth truthfully. Sanctimonious is using truth to your advantage. That's what it is. And when we say these true things and we use them to our advantage, we're being sanctimonious. B and C are basically the same argument. It's the because God doesn't need us to do these things, we therefore don't shouldn't or don't need to do them. That's right. But that just all goes back to the whole means versus. Yes, it's true that God does it, but He uses all these means that He's given us to. Do. Right, and those people really have to come to terms with all the texts in the Bible that command us to do this. Yeah. So you have the examples in the Bible, which I've covered in these verses, but you also have the Bible's explicit commands that we covered several weeks ago. Go do this. Talk this way. Be prepared to give a defense. The Great Commission. All that's wrong? All that's contradictory to the Bible? It's just, it's a mess. 